This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today in a kind of distant, remote uh, COVID pandemic uh, edition of the podcast is Chris Tropiano of Resonant Culture Brewing in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hey, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've known Chris for a long time, and if you have uh, uh, been or checked out some of the all-access uh, video classes produced by Craft Beer and Brewing, you may be familiar with Chris. He's done classes on advanced hopping with us and on kettle souring. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of that later on because uh, Chris has had some additional learning that he has experienced even since teaching those classes um, but on both the kettle souring and on the uh, dry hopping and hopping kind of strategies. Uh, we're going to kind of revisit some of those. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the lager program at Resonant Culture and some of the developments that they've been making on the lager side. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about mixed culture as well. Before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Uh, before we uh, start talking here, I do want to mention that uh, it is now kind of early August and the deadline for Craft Beer and Brewing's Best in Beer issue uh, submissions from breweries. If you are a professional brewer out there, that deadline is August 28th. So if you are not on our emailing uh, list and our editorial list for receiving notifications about that, uh, just drop me an email, jbogner, J-B-O-G-N-E-R at beerandbrewing.com. I'd be happy to send you a link to the list or go on to the help center at beerandbrewing.com. Uh, look up how to uh, submit beer for review of craft beer and brewing uh, and do that. We, you know, the best in beer issue is obviously biggest one of the year and we are uh, madly prepping for that right now. And we want to kind of, of course, cast a wide net, especially in these days when it's hard for us to get, I, I look at it in a typical year, I would have been traveling pretty much nonstop twice a month for the last six months. And these days, for the last six months, I have traveled between my uh, living room uh, down into my office basement. And every once in a while uh, to the office, not very often, but, uh, you know, to get a package or two. And so anyway, there are our opportunity for experiencing and uh, enjoying and uh, embracing the beer that, uh, you know, uh, professional brewers are making right now and in, in, uh, around the world has been more limited than it would typically be in a year. We would love to, ca again, cast that net as wide as possible. So, uh, yeah, just shoot me an email and uh, um, tropes. 
Let's talk about your brewing history, how you got to where you are today at Resident Culture, um, that follow that kind of arc for your professional career from the point where you started engaging with craft beer to the time you decided that this needed to be a career, and then uh, you know how you got to uh, Resident Culture today. Yeah, um, I guess the kind of introduction of craft beer probably happened on my, my wife and I took a trip my girlfriend at the time, wife now, uh, to Europe after we graduated and stopped in Belgium uh, along the way and was really uh, in, uh, impacted by our trip to Brussels. We went to this little beer bar um, that I'm forgetting the name of right now that's right by the mannequin piece, the little little boy like peeing into the fountain. But we had I had a Zinna beer by... Uh, uh, Brasserie de Lausanne, and it just blew me away. And I hadn't had anything like it. Um, not to mention all the other beers we had when we were in Belgium. Where I was, I was not only was the beer so good, but I was I was blown away by how you would go into a beer bar in Belgium and they'd have a list of 300 different types of beers, and you'd order the beer and it would come out with like the specialized glass just for that brand of beer and and what they bring you the bottle and it was just clear that they were really taking their beer much more seriously than obviously I was at the time or probably most of the United States even. Um, and that just really struck me and kind of left a lasting impression. Obviously we kept the menu from that was in 2009. So it's been a while. Um, but when I got back to the States, I definitely kind of branched out in my beer drinking. Um, some of my roommates were home brewers at the time. I was in Houston, Texas, um, and then quickly followed my wife to Austin, Texas, um, and kind of started home brewing on a more serious level. Uh, and pretty soon after, had the classic dream of starting my own brewery someday. And from there, I I made it a point to kind of get some real firsthand experience. Um, which was which was really a smart decision. I know there's lots of people that kind of jump right in to the professional realm straight from home brewing and crush it, um, but I just wasn't in a position to do that financially or really, you know, from a skill set point of view. Um, so yeah, I just I basically just started volunteering at a brewery called Independence Brewing Company in Austin. Um, great guys, they make some great beer. It was a really fun and interesting place to learn because we when I started there um gosh I forget what year that was probably 2012 or so 2013 um they were working on a super old 15 barrel system like there were no slope floors in that place we had to squeegee the entire floor every single night we were just I was working on a forehead bottling mahine um, for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. And like, we were just scraping by and we learned a lot about, you know, what not to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, we still made really great beer on, you know, maybe not ideal equipment. And then of course they grew quite a bit as while I was there into this 60 barrel brew house and they upgraded all their equipment. And now I think they're kind of partially owned by Lagunitas and they're crushing it. Um, but it was a really, I kind of got to see that whole trajectory. So I learned a lot there and worked my way up from the bottling line to a seller position. And then kind of just on a whim, 
applied to a, a, I guess Russian River had posted a, I think it was a pro brewer ad. And at the time I wasn't even really looking for work, uh, but Russian River being who they were and I had we had actually my wife and I had visited there uh, a couple of years prior before I was even in the industry and they were easily my favorite brewery um, that I had ever had so I figured why not apply what what could uh, possibly you know there's no downside to that and uh, you know lo and behold I guess Vinny liked my cover letter and brought me out for an interview and it went well and I got the job. Um, so we moved across halfway across the country uh, again to go to uh, Northern California, and I I started out in a seller position, and quickly there was a little turnover when I was there, and they needed me to move into a brewer position pretty soon after I started, which was great, a little nerve-wracking, um, you know, to be brewing Pliny the Elder on your first professional brew, uh, only you know three months after being hired to do a seller job, but uh, it was a good, great learning experience. And they're, they really treat their employees great there. I can't really say enough good things about them, but uh, obviously, you know, learning how to brew the best beer in the world was huge for me and kind of opened some doors. Um, I feel, on one hand, I feel kind of bad for Natalie and Vinny because they, I think they lose a lot of good talent. Not that I was good talent, but they lose a lot of other good talent. Um, I think strictly based on the reputation that they have. Um, and they probably see more turnover they, than they become a target for other brewers really, to poach from. I think so. Yeah. Which is too bad. They really do treat their employees. Well, we got, I mean, it was great. We got free lunches. The pay was great. And, benefits are great um and they're just good people um so I felt bad leaving and it wasn't at all intended but I had the opportunity to kind of pursue my original dream of opening my own brewery I was approached um a friend of a friend approached us approached me and it was a really good opportunity to move back to North Carolina where I went to school with my wife and I have some family out here and I you know, got full control over the brewing operations and a little equity stake, and we didn't have to risk a whole lot. Um, so it was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and then, you know, that was, what, four years ago? The brewery's three years old, and here we are today. Let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, before we do that, with nearly 20 years of innovation experience, Brewmation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions, and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From half barrel to 30 barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com to get started. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything you need to outfit your taproom and fans. Current trends include to-go drinkware, tie-dyed prints, and portable coolers. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. So talk to me a little bit about resident culture and uh, the idea behind the brewery, um, you know, from a kind of creative aspect and standpoint. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of breweries 
a lot of brewers say that they just want to make beer that they want to drink and that was mostly true for me um i definitely wanted to have a focus on hoppy styles lagers and mixed culture beers um one thing i really enjoyed when i was at Russian River was being able to brew the Sinambic, which is the base beer for beatification. Their their, uh, quasi-spontaneous beer. Um, As the pub brewer, they have the little horny tank in the pub, so I got to brew that beer, and that really made an impression on me. And just kind of this, I mean, the the name resident culture is meant to kind of evoke the house yeast culture, and we really wanted that to be a part of our mixed culture program and hopefully develop something that was unique and what better way to do that than spontaneous beer so we decided to put in a cool ship which was i think at the time the first or second in north carolina um so you know that obviously works from a marketing perspective as well but um no one was really doing it at the time and we wanted to see what we could produce in our locality um, from a spontaneous perspective. Um, So, but you know, mostly it's beers that we wanted to drink ourselves, um, but also we had to be realistic about running a business and, you know, I'm not naive and I know that, especially now is the perfect time, perfect example of having to do things you weren't intending to originally and change your business plan up, but um, I certainly see a place for kind of all styles of beer, especially the ones that are popular, even if they might not be the ones that I want to drink every day. Um, sure, sure. You know, and with something like spontaneous beer, um, you can't expect necessarily a audience demand to be there for something that has a relatively kind of niche approach and a niche audience right now in North America, actually, or worldwide for that matter. Um, but there is something that I would, you know, having been to the tap room, having seen the the cool ship room, there is something about creating a drama and romance to the idea of it and a visual and kind of experiential way so that even people, when they walk into your brewery and they see it there, or if they happen to be there on a day when you are filling a cool ship, uh, it, the kind of the visual experience of it is something that builds an incredible excitement around that kind of beer itself. And so in a lot of ways, you, you're almost setting out to create an audience for the beer as much as you are sell a beer to an existing audience for that kind of beer. Yeah, that's, I mean, you said it better than I could have, honestly. And, that, and now that you say that, that's interesting. I remember that you were there for one of the fillings, right? Uh, yeah, because we yeah. don't we don't get to fill it very often in North Carolina. We only have, you know, the stars have to align with the weather and uh, having barrel avail- barrels available to put it into and all that. So I think we've only filled it maybe seven or eight times in our whole history. So you were lucky to be there for one of those days it was uh the end of january in 2019 when we were were out there and uh yeah yeah um so then moving into moving into a market like charlotte uh, with this kind of idea that you want to make uh both interesting and kind of uh, you know beers that are pushing the conversation forward and on that kind of progressive edge 
of uh, of IPA and sour beer, mixed culture beer. Um, you know, how'd you form this kind of foundation of recipes and then start to kind of envision what the character of resident culture was going to feel like? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll be the first to admit it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be when I, you know, left California and was all about, you know, West Coast IPA and sure. light, dry, crisp, bitter beers for the most part. Um, we definitely had to adapt um, to our market and what our consumers wanted, um, which was, I mean, it's a little scary and also fun in a way because I'm having to really throw a bunch of ideas at the wall sometimes and try to see what works best. It's not necessarily what I was trained as a brewer to brew, you know? So we, you know, quickly realized, for example, that the West Coast IPAs weren't exactly what our market was craving. Um, they, they do okay, but uh, there were no, there was no one really canning beer and having releases and, and, with the with the branding that we kind of brought to the table, we kind of put it all together for everyone and into one package, um, and it, and it really just caught on quickly. And I'll I'll admit I, a lot of the hazy well even still to this day a lot of the IPAs we make are not all hits. They they missed a lot of the time, um, and I we really had to adapt to our system and and figure out what worked for us. And I, that just, I think, really requires a lot of honesty and and you gotta kinda put your ego aside quite a bit and, and just like really honestly taste the beers and, and try to determine what went wrong and how to fix it. I think that, you know, we, we just dumped a beer last week, for example, which we don't thankfully have to do that very often, but Sometimes you just got to do that. And at the beginning of, of uh, our brewery, we certainly did that quite a bit more. So when you say not a hit, what are what are some of the kind of parameters that you find go in different directions, go in, in the wrong direction for you that kind of create you know, or push a beer to a point where it doesn't meet the vision that you had for it or that expectation? Yeah, there's a lot of... It's tough. I mean, there's a lot of borderline beers that you're would 95% of breweries sell it uh, and would, you know, some people enjoy it and most, and would some people not? Yeah. Uh, and you kind of, you have long conversations about those ones. Well, let me phrase it a little differently. Um, when you're tasting a beer, what is it that might push it or what kind of common things do you find in those beers that don't meet your standard? You know, what is it that will disqualify a beer for you? And, you know, once we talk about what those things are, let's dig in a little bit further to think about what in the process creates those and how you then solve for some of those issues. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, specifically with regards to IPAs, I'm mostly talking about IPAs here for sure. the record. Um, uh, there are a few things that really are prevalent more frequently than others. I think one of them is the kind of harsh astringency 
uh, factor that uh, is pretty common, it seems like in the hazy IPAs especially. Um, we've just had some that were so astringent and unpleasant to drink that we had to cut the cord on them. I mean, at the end of the day, if the beer isn't drinkable, then what are you doing? What's the point? Um, sure. And this astringency, is this driven by hops, the choice of specific hops, the way that those blend of hops are working together? Um, was it based on like extraction time, temperature, or other type of process concern? You know, as you kind of delve into this, where where is that astringency coming from? And, or have you been able to kind of identify to prevent it from happening again? Yeah, I've, I think you kind of hit on all, all of the different factors that go into it. I think it's a combination of the body of the beer. Um, we much more frequently see it in beers that have finished at a dry final gravity. Um, so yeah, f f from that point of view, we try, especially on these beers that are hopped at three, four or five pounds per barrel, we try to ensure that we're going to have a lot of body in the beer. So higher mash temps. We try to avoid putting lactose or maltodextrin into a beer. Occasionally we will if we're doing like a session IPA or a, a lighter bodied beer. Um, just we've learned that that, that does help. Um, and then, you know, there are certain hops that do cause more astringency than others. Um, actually this one that we're going to dump, um, which I'm happy to talk about because I think more beer, well, breweries need to dump beer more frequently. Um, but it was a hundred percent galaxy beer. And I, I think we just got a bad batch of galaxy. Um, we've since changed lots, um, that we're getting and We've, I've actually tasted it in some other Galaxy beers that I've had, um, so it makes me feel a little bit better about our situation, like that it wasn't a process-related thing, because otherwise I had no idea why it created that flavor. Um, we've seen it in some other hops too. If they're just not good quality hops, um, then they will impart some, some bad flavors, astringency being one of them. Um, yeah, I think these high, I kind of touched on it, these super high hop loads are a huge factor too. Um, and breweries are trying to turn them around so fast sometimes that it doesn't really give them enough time to clear out and brighten up. So I think having enough residency in the bright tank or just crashing in the fermenter for uh, an ample amount of time is helpful. I mean, you hear people talking about that all the time, like let this can sit for a couple weeks before you drink it and it'll be much better. And I totally get why a brewery needs to put that out and I'm not trying to criticize that. We certainly uh, try to turn beer as fast as we can, um, but sometimes a little extra time crashing in a, in a fermenter or bright tank uh, can make a big difference. Do you use things like, you know, dry hopping temperature to your advantage to, to try to, um, you know, bring down some of that astringency? Yeah, so, so for quite a while, actually, maybe two years, we were dry hopping, doing a soft crash. So we would, we would fully ferment the beer out, soft crash to about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, try to drop as much yeast out as possible and then dry hop with a recirc the next day. Um, and that 
worked pretty well for us. Um, but we kind of had a few instances where the beers were turning out really vegetal and then also pretty astringent. Um, and we couldn't quite put our finger on it. Lo and behold, we've done some research kind of with YCH and uh, with some friends. Um, oh, shoot, I should mention that one of the other things that came of this cold, cooler dry hop was this this like hop stank. I don't want to get too far off the, the astringency question, but... Um, hop stank. Yeah, this like... Uh, some brewers will describe it as like an overripe like papaya, like stinky, overripe fruit. And ironically, I think consumers actually, a decent amount of consumers like it just because it's a really aggressive aroma and it kind of pops out of the glass. And I think in small amounts, it is actually kind of pleasant, kind of contributes to that kind of like dank, sweaty hop hoppiness. Um, but it can really get out of hand. And I think we've we worked with YCH and then some brewing friends um, to kind of try to pinpoint exactly what was happening. And we don't have a definite answer at this point, but after they analyzed a bunch of beers for us, um, at this point, we're kind of, we kind of believe that it has to do with the, the cooler dry hop that we were doing. Um, we think that we're going to avoid it in the future by using a warmer dry hop, getting some biotransformation, uh, so dry hopping with yeast still in suspension and still active. Um, so far it's been working for us. Um, so we're kind of making that an SOP moving forward. So we've kind of abandoned the cool dry hop. Um, I think that the cool dry hop works really well if you have great hops and you're sure that they're gonna you know, produce a really good beer, but if you're ever unsure, we've found that a little bit of active, firm dry hopping can really transform hops that might not really speak to you out of the bag. Um, and the final product, it always seems to work out a lot better. Um, it's just kind of an insurance policy against hops that you might not be 100% on. Um, and that's proven true for us, at least. I can only speak to the results we've seen. Um, but our, the lab guys at YCH, um, that was kind of their hypothesis. Um, they don't have any like hard facts to back that up, but so far it seems anecdotally true for us. Um, so we're kind of moving over to that fully for all of our IPAs. It's an interesting idea that, um, that that biotransformation process could, because it tends to generate using you know, specific yeast and I, I assume you're gonna you're using London L3 or uh, yeah we we kind of some... vary between BSI's London sure. L3 and uh, Omega's London L3 but all pretty similar strains yeah you know but knowing using that kind of yeast strain it's going to you know uh, convert and create these flavor compounds that we generally find pleasant and enjoyable um, but I haven't heard brewers talk before about that idea that it could take hops that you are less thrilled about um, or have a lower bag appeal and uh, and kind of turn them into something that you're a little bit happier with. Um, and the hop stank idea, I think, is interesting. Certainly, as we went through our IPA issue, uh, I find that to be a nice complement to the kind of 
more simplistic and straightforward citrus characters that uh, you know are so prom- uh, prevalent, especially in citra beers. Um, that having something that is just sweet and fruity is okay, but having something that is sweet and fruity with some interesting and funky edges, whether that's a minerality or whether that's that kind of, uh, you know, locker room sweat or whether that's like you say, that kind of overripe papaya guava, um, stinky, almost like edge of rotting kind of tropical fruit, um, in small amounts adds these nice edges and creates some definition, um, you know, especially in beers that are so big, full bodied and, you know, just generally sweet and fruity. Um, but riding that line is hard. How do you, um, how do you kind of envision from a recipe and process, uh, perspective, how you are going to accomplish those kinds of multi-layered, multi-dimensional, uh, elements within your, uh, hazy IPAs? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I, I agree. And I think that the, it's, it's, of course, as a professional brewer, we have to think about what the consumer is is after um and it's it seems like sometimes they just want like really sweet full-bodied fruity beers like you said and i wonder sometimes if the the nuance of like having a little of that interesting funk if you will the little dank characteristics sometimes gets lost but then again they're also pretty highly rated beers for us um so I, th- I think the consumers get that too, and which is nice to see. Um, but yeah, when we're constructing an IPA recipe, we will, we're lucky enough to select our own hops, um, which has really been a game changer for us. So we kind of have a good idea of what each hop is bringing to the table. At least the big, at least, you know, the Citra, Mosaic, Galaxy. Um, we use a lot of Strata. We really like... Um, and we also actually use a lot of this experimental hop HBC 692 and Sabro. Um, so we kind of know what each of those hops is bringing to the table for the most part. And we can kind of layer them as we want. Um, and I'm with you. I think there's there's kind of a need for that kind of piney, almost dank characteristic in a beer so that it's not just like overly sweet and fruity. Uh, I think it makes it a little more palatable over, you know, having a having a couple beers. Um, what I find interesting too is that, you know, when I look at the way that our blind panel responds to them, and I look at the way, uh, having again tasted through all of these in a big, big blind tasting, um, it's remarkable to me when, you know, tasting something like a monkish, you know, hazy IPA, just how bitter and dank and and funky the elements are within that kind of that beer um, more so than I would necessarily get if I were just drinking that beer or, or, or that family of beers from that brewery by itself. Um, and, and same kind of thing with new Anthem and, and these other kind of top IPA, you know, hazy IPA purveyors. Um, there is, I, I think that they work on multiple levels and I think that's the weird and interesting thing about it to where, some consumers can taste them and not taste that that part of it or maybe not consciously process that they are tasting that part of it and would describe it if you ask them as straight juice you know oh it's just like straight fruit juice um you know but the reality is even when you drink 
orange juice. It is does it's not like straight orange flavoring. Like there is, you know, it is actually right there are these other characters within even orange juice itself it has its own kind of uh like astringent bitterness even within it you know in addition to all of the sugar in addition to the kind of you know uh, sweet orange flavor in orange juice itself it has these other undercurrents and i think that that becomes this interesting challenge where i do see consumers responding to that um, they, I don't know that they necessarily know why that they're responding to it. Um, you know, but those beers, then when you have, um, you know, even when our judges tasting within this giant context and you come across something like that, that both captures that sweet and juicy character and has these interesting layered undertones to it that make it a deep and engaging beverage just as a beverage um then that's also a fascinating experience to see something that you know it's like a piece of art where an audience that is not as versed in the kind of subtext and uh uh you know and deep meaning could look at it and say oh well that's really cool and you know a critic could also pull up a seat and speak to you know the volumes of additional things that are going on that may not be you know immediately available i love things that work on both of those levels you know um that kind of play on that but that being aside sorry i'm I'm off of my (laughs) you know my my creative uh, tangent there um you know from your perspective envisioning something like that becomes an interesting challenge and then using the tools again from you know, mash to, to hopping regimen to kind of process tweaks through the brewing process. Um, how do you kind you know, how do you go through that optimization process and figure look, well, this one is super sweet. How do I tweak an edge to that to, to kind of keep it sweet, but also add this kind of fun element that uh, I think may help bring it out. Or another way to think about it is, you know, adding salt you know, to caramel brings out the sweetness, even though it's a different kind of, you know, it's this, it creates this counterpoint, which actually heightens the experience of this other thing, you know, within that IPA recipe, how do you think about like, I could, if I throw a little bit of this in, it's going to make this other thing pop a little bit more. Um, You know, talk to me a little bit about that kind of creative process from your perspective. Yeah. Well, we actually do add salt, a decent amount of salt to our hoppy beers, <laughs> which is interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, I, actually, I actually do think that kind of helps soften the, the mouthfeel of it a little bit. It's not to a perceivable level. Like, it's not tasting salty, I hope. Right. Not to my palate, but I do think it helps our water chemistry um, to help, you know, make, make those beers a little softer. Um, but, yeah, this kind of goes back to you really just have to have a, a good or an honest palate and you have to taste the beers that you're brewing and, and be honest about the flavors that you're getting. Um, but yeah, from a, pers- from the point of view of designing a recipe, uh, you know, we'll, you'll, we'll use the body of the beer to help, help us, you know, use bigger dry hops, for example. Um, the higher alcohol content creates more body perceived sweetness, um, and body. So you can hop those beers a little heavier. Um, if it's not going to be as high in alcohol, then you need body in other ways, a higher mash temp or, um, unfermentable sugars. Um, 
if you got, like I said earlier, if you have hops that aren't going to be outstanding, you know, on their own, they might need, require a little bit of biotransformation um, to help kind of smooth out their flavors a little bit. Um, there are certain hops that don't really work well just on their own, just because they're not super punchy and 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 strong by themselves, but they work really well in tandem with other hops. Uh, Ozaka and Motueka and uh, there's there's a number of lower alpha hops that are just kind of they're beautiful, but if you try to use them by themselves, it, it won't really hit as hard. Um, those are all kind of things we consider, and a lot of it's just through trial and error. I'll be honest. Uh, we we change our recipes and our processes up constantly. I mean, we're only a three year old brewery. I still don't feel like we're you know. I still feel feel like we're still trying to figure ourselves out, you know, and our processes out, and we're changing things all the time. And I don't I don't think we'll be there for at least another year where I feel really, really confident in all of our processes and all of our beer our beer consistency. Um, I think it's just an ongoing thing. You really gotta you really gotta experiment and be honest with yourself about the beer that you're making and. That's the only way to get better. Now, uh, you know, I've heard you say it a few times. Be honest with yourself, and and uh, <laughs> now, the, uh, well, this is it's another interesting and and kind of fascinating question that I always have for breweries. That um, it is natural within any kind of brewery or business of, or anything along those lines to be familiar with what you do and also be conditioned by what you do that um over time our contexts and our palates become created and tuned to the things that we consume most often um there's not some you know outside ideal of what everything should be like you know we are products and our very palates are products of our own environment and the own inputs that we put, you know, that we, we feed them. And so, you know, when it comes to breweries, I, 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 for years I've been remarking on this, but breweries that give all of their staff free beer from the brewery, it's a really cool idea. It's a great initiative. But what happens is that everyone at the brewery's palate becomes tuned in to the the flavors that that brewery makes. And so then your appraisal of what is good becomes defined by the beer that you make as your brewery. And as a result, then brewers, and I hear it relatively frequently, well, on our internal panel, we tasted, you know, this beer, our beer, along with these beers from these other folks, and our entire panel, you know, liked our beer better. And, uh, and so every time I hear that from a brewer, I'm like, yeah, of course they do, right? I mean, that's that, it's like because everyone is drinking that beer all the time, that is what they begin to associate with good. And because they associate that with good, everything else gets judged against that. Like it becomes a very hard process as a brewer, as a brewery operator, as, as you know, somebody even working within staff to all taste um, you know, and uh, you know, appraise and, and evaluate beer in a broader sense. Um, if you're only tasting yours or you're primarily tasting your own, 
um, it can be hard to look at it from the same standpoint as a consumer who is not just drinking your beer, but is now drinking your beer plus your local competitors, plus beer from farther afield that they're trading for with friends, whether you know it's close or across the country, and you know have a different palate for this. From from your perspective, then, how are you honest with yourself, but building a a level of appraisal and understanding of what that is that isn't just conditioned by what you personally like and what you drink a lot, but also has some broader idea of honesty being the way that a consumer is going to approach this. Yeah. Good question. And like, I, you know, that this about me that I'm kind of my harshest critic and I'll be the first one to criticize, uh, the beers that I make, but, I, I really, I, I think I am. You always um, say that before you defend it in some way or another. <laughs> um, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, I've, I mean, I'll defend that. You really got to be critical of yourself if you're going to be a good brewer. But besides that, I do, I truly do drink a lot of other people's beer more so than I drink my own even. Um, I'm drinking a cellar maker pale ale right now that uh, they were nice enough to send me. And when like people were also very fortunate and people bring in a lot of beer to the brewery, well, they used to when we were open more frequently, we have a lot of customers that are beer nerds and they'll have beer shares at the brewery and drop some cool cans or bottles off for us to try. And a lot of breweries will visit and drop, drop beer off. And I'm always excited to try what other people are bringing into the brewery and what our customers specifically are drinking and are excited about. And, you know, sure, it might be a 18% Imperial Stout that I'm not, you know, particularly fond of drinking most of the time, but I'd, I'll go over and have a little pour of it and see what they're getting excited about and try to really think about, you know, how I could recreate that or if that's something I want to recreate. Um, because clearly, you know, they're excited about it. Um, so there's some value there. Um, but yeah, I think it's all about tasting not just other beer, but wine. I drink a lot of wine and I'm trying to get a lot better about analyzing the flavors and the experience, the drinking experience that we're having with the wine that we're drinking and food, being a little more thoughtful about, you know, your palate and just everything that you're kind of taking in, it all kind of comes back to to beer in some way and you can relate it all together. Um, but I think you make a pretty good point when you're drinking, you know, one thing all the time, it's easy to kind of cloud your own judgment and opinion. Um, Tropes, let's talk a little bit about um quick sour methods, or I should say at least the kind of Berliner Goza uh, family of beers. Um, but first, Abe Beverage Equipment is your trusted source for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Whether you're just starting out or looking to expand, Abe offers brew houses from three to 60 barrel and canning lines from 15 to 90 cans per minute. Call Abe Beverage Equipment at 402-475-BEER or visit abeequipment.com to learn more. Located in Lincoln, Nebraska, Abe is your trusted source for your brewing equipment. Visit abeequipment, that's A-B-E, equipment.com 
for complete brewery solutions. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, including those with uh, Chris Tropiano here, a special deep dive email only for all access subscribers, premium content, and all access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. You taught a, a video class for us on this and uh, you know about building kind of quicker but acid forward beers and fruit, you know, fruit and acid uh, combination beers. Um, but lately you found your process kind of moving in a slightly different direction. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, we, we love kettle sours. We, we still brew them, uh, quite frequently. They're one of our most popular styles, probably right after IPAs are obviously our most popular. Um, then it's kind of even between kettle sours and lagers, but, uh, they're a great, they're a great, uh, base for fruit um and a nice refreshing drink we just kind of from a creative perspective um they're not super um nuanced or complex beers um and and uh we just hired a, a guy david out of atlanta um who has a pretty good background in in kind of mixed culture stuff and uh, berliners in particular and he's kind of spearheading this program for us and the, the beers, so we're, but what we're doing now, uh, we're moving towards uh, mixed culture, kind of more traditional Berliners. Uh, the base is uh, no boil, um, but we have a Solera going in a stainless tank. So, you know, there's there's an option to, to change that in the future where we can boil the base beer and add that to the to the main Solera and kind of change the base beer um, over time. But the idea is to kind of have a mixed culture um, that's not, you know, overly funky or uh, overly acidic, just kind of a nice base that's a little more interesting than your typical kettle sour, which is just really clean, tart, um, and simple. Um, and for us, it's been a really nice way to utilize, right now it's summer season, so we have tons of local fruit in North Carolina, and we've been really fortunate. This year, we've, on, we've been overloaded with fruit, really, um, just because it all seems to come in season at, at the same time. But um, this base beer kind of does a little more justice uh, for us, for for the local fruit that we're getting, and, and the end product is, is just a little more nuanced. Um, and subtle and and a little more complex and a little more pleasant to drink um, from our perspective so we're at the at the current moment we're doing uh four packs of 330 mil bottles and everything is bottle conditioned with like a quasi krausening method um so the the head retention on the beer is great which is something you don't get with uh kettle soured beers and something that means a lot to me as a brewer and I don't know how much the consumers really uh care about that but it's really satisfying to crack a bottle of Berliner and have a super frothy head that kind of lingers on the glass um and you just can't get that with forced carbs kettle sours um but yeah the the beers themselves are just they're just a little more interesting to drink and I would really love if we could Maybe not 
completely eliminate kettle sours. I think there's a place for them, um, and they're so easy to make and so, such a quick turnaround that they'll probably always be a part of our arsenal. But this is just kind of another tool in the tool toolbox and kind of scratches an itch for the brewer specifically. And I hope the the consumers kind of can appreciate the added complexity and and nuance of the beer. Um, but yeah, we're we're really enjoying them and. We hope they catch on and we can kind of promote this like four pack at a pretty reasonable price point because it's still a, it's all stainless uh, fermented. Um, it's not a super long beer. It's probably a one to two month turnaround time as opposed to like a two week turnaround time with a kettle sour. So it's still not, it's nothing like a barrel aged mixed culture beer that's taking a year, but right. It takes a little bit more time and effort than a, your typical kettle sour. You know, quick fermentations, quick lactic uh, fermentations in these kinds of quick sour beers are pretty easy to understand. Crank up at the temperature, pitch a pure lactic culture, um, get it to the you know, level of TA or pH that uh, you have for a goal, um, cut, off, cut it off and, uh, you know, kind of move through the process. But when you start talking about building a Solera method with uh, – uh, you know, a culture that is not just a purely lactic culture, potentially, um, you know, then time and temperature and uh, oxygen and everything else uh, become some significant factors to kind of maintain through that. Also making sure that that culture stays where you want it to be and doesn't uh, drift with other kinds of elements of the culture kind of coming to the forefront. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, and with that kind of method, keeping it, uh, keeping that culture developing these kinds of uh, you know Berliner Goza type uh, uh, light but acidic flavors without uh, producing kind of uh, negative or off flavors yeah um, good question we we basically use um, we actually use for the lacto culture so it's a com the overall culture is a combination of uh, lactobacillus a couple of lactobacillus strains and Britannomyces strains um, it's unclear whether there's any sac in there at this point. Um, it's possible that some may have sneaked, snuck in there, but um, it started as just Brett and Lacto. Um, but we were, we're kind of using a combination of our hopping rates, uh, IBUs in the kettle to control the Lacto. The, the Lacto that we have is pretty hop sensitive, which works in our favor a little bit, but also we have to be careful um, how highly we're hopping it. Um, so really just a couple IBUs is enough to keep it to a point where we know it's not going to over-sour anything. Um, when we're knocking the, the beer out, we typically will go on the warmer side, 85, sometimes 90 degrees Fahrenheit, just to give the lacto a little bit of a head start. And we're also not aerating the beer. Um, so that kind of all helps to give the lacto a little bit of a advantage over the yeast that might be in there and the bread. I mean, bread is a yeast, but um, yeah. And again, we're not looking for a super funky Britannomyces like funk bomb um, from these sure. beers. We want them to have character and like I said, nuance, but be really palatable and at the end of the day a Berliner Weiss in my mind should be a crushable refreshing beer 
Um, and that's essentially still what we're after with these beers. So dialing in that level of tartness is really important. Um, we, you know, we've blended down to where we want to be. Um, we've gotten the base beer to a point where it's like a pretty good acidity. We're actually at this point, we're looking for a little more acidity out of our base beer. So for example, this last time we topped up the Solera, we, uh, we put zero IBU wort in there, uh, knocked it out at 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and actually added a, a fresh pitch of lacto to it to kind of give a little bit more of a head start to the lacto, um, because I think we had just gone a little bit too heavy on the IBUs um, from previous batches, uh, and it just needed a little bit more acidity. But yeah, we're just, we're really just at the end of the day, hoping that this beer can be really refreshing and drinkable and we want it to be, you know, something that's not too complicated from a brewing sure, perspective. Sure. <laughs> um, because we do want it to be a quicker turnaround in terms of quicker compared to other mixed culture beers, um, uh, but still have a little bit of flavor and, and uh, complexity to it. So how, how large is the tank uh, relative to, you know, a, a typical batch size coming off of your system? How much are you pulling off and then how much do you put back in? Is it is that always a one-to-one where you're doing a specific size batch, you take that much off, you know, package that out to become whatever beer that's going to become or, or, you know, put it onto whatever fruit or however you want to, you know, treat that? What is What does that kind of mechanical process look like? Yeah, it... it it does depend on the fruit. So far, we've only fruited the the variants that we've done. Um, we've thought about just kind of dry hopping a version and serving it straight up, but but for the, the time being, it, it revolves a lot around the fruit availability. Um, so we've done uh, strawberries. We did a strawberry beer, and we kind of determine the amount that we're going to pull off based on the amount of strawberries that we had or whatever the fruit may be. We did blueberries most recently. Um, so that kind of determines how much we're pulling off. And then the amount that we pull off, we're, we're typically putting back in whatever we pull off. Um, the vessel itself is a little over 10 barrels, I believe. And our system is 15 barrels. So what we typically do is we'll just pull off wort from a, double batch of another beer. So we're pulling it off of like a 30 barrel batch of lager or Berliner Weiss, um, like a kettle sour, um, sorry, Berliner Weiss. Well, I should, I'm getting confusing now, but <laughs> we, we make a very clear dis, uh, distinction uh, between kettle souring and Berliners. We don't call any of our kettle sours Berliner Weiss, so I shouldn't say that. Um, like our cans will never say Berliner Weiss on them. Um, but the bottles do just so that our consumers know like exactly what they're getting. Um, but yeah, those, those recipes are the base recipes are very similar. So we will pull off wort from those into the Solera and then the rest of it will go into our normal fermenter for fermentation. That makes sense. Um, let's pivot again. And, uh, cause I know that you'd love to talk about, uh, lager brewing for a while. Uh, given that that's just one of those uh, one of those kind of passions that uh, is also driven and supported by uh, some of the other beers that you play with, also, um, you know. But you all launched a Lager Fest last year, and yeah, you know, have uh, have definitely been trying to 
you know, push the logger narrative forward. Uh, what I really am curious about is how you approach making loggers that feel like your beer and that have a resident culture character to them. So talk to me a little bit about designing and brewing lager beer um, that maintains personality and some sort of identifiable characteristics for you in the brewery um, while also fitting within this bigger tradition of lager brewing and feeling like uh, um, what the expectation tasting like what that expectation is for lager beer. Yeah. I'm obviously we're huge fans of lager at resident culture. And that's probably the beer that I care most about personally um, as the head brewer. And so I really dedicate a lot of time and effort to dialing those in and, and kind of developing kind of our our process, both our process and kind of the vision we see for that program moving moving forward and kind of from a big picture. And I, I, I really, I, again, at the end of the day, these beers need to be drinkable and crushable in my opinion. Um, but they want, we want them to have nuance and, and character. And I think when it comes to lagers, really little things can make a big difference because the flavors are so delicate. Um, so for us, um, specifically one thing we're, we're doing recently that we've kind of developed and we've found has made a really big difference for the quality of our beer is krausening our lagers, which is a pretty traditional German technique of, of taking some actively fermenting wort uh, from another batch of lager and pushing it into a finished lager that is finished fermenting. And you kind of naturally carbonate the lager that way. And it also polishes up a lot of the, the flavors. Um, we've also found that it, it creates some really incredible head retention um, that, that we haven't even been able to to attain with spunding, which is another process that we previously used quite a bit. Um, and that's, that's just a method of kind of capping a tank before it, before a beer is done fully fermenting and capturing that natural carbonation or natural CO2 that would normally blow off. Um, and that is a good way to create head retention, but not it for us anecdotally, it hasn't, um, hasn't been as good as this croisoning method. And, the croisoning is really, it seems to really just like polish off the, the edges of the beer and make it a really soft, uh, delicate, really nuanced beer. And we're, we're trying to move over all of our lagers to this method. It, it requires a little bit of juggling, um, from a production standpoint, because you need a, you need to have a lager that's you know, done fermenting just as soon as you have another lager that's at high croisin, which is like the most active part of fermentation. Um, but we've got ourselves in a pretty good place where we feel like we can do it consistently. Um, there's some small exceptions to that, but yeah, that's, that's one thing that's really recently, um, kind of been eye opening for us. Um, other than that, we, we were lucky enough, uh, our, our friends at Halfway Crooks in Atlanta 
uh, actually went to Germany um, last year to select hops um, straight from Seitz Farm um, in Germany, and they were generous enough to include us um, on their hop order. So um, basically, 95% of the hops we're using in our for in our German style pilsners are are uh, are Helles, um, and then a lot of our other lagers that we make, even if they're just one off, we'll kind of we'll utilize these hops that we get direct from Germany. It's just a small kind of family farm, um, and we've just been really impressed and delighted by the hops that we're getting um, from from this from this German uh, producer. Uh, what uh, what was creating that kind of delight? You know, from um, I mean, obviously we're talking about very small differences in a lot of ways here, but um, are there specific you know elements of these hops that you find, um, you know, again in small ways are you know like what makes them more enjoyable than say uh, hops you would be using before them? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure. I'm sure some of it is uh, placebo because I'm just like smitten with the idea, the romantic idea of getting hops straight from a small German farm. Um, but the results have really uh, borne that out. I mean, our the last German pills we made, and um, we have a Hellas coming down the pipeline, have been probably some of the best lagers we've made, and. There's just this like really soft, nice, delicate floral thing that I think sometimes the the German specific or the European hops that you get in the states have been processed and maybe not the best of ways, and they're changing hands multiple times. Uh, we've we've just seen a lot of European varieties that we get from other hop producers tend to be a little muddled and. Uh, a little bit too herbal and we get this like kind of weird I have I can't really describe it in any other way other than like this cocoa powder thing um, and I think that if you're able to source them direct from a farm you're just kind of cutting out so many people in the process that you're you're probably getting a little bit of a better quality product um, but yeah, they're just a little brighter, a little bit, a little bit fresher, I guess. And the the resulting beers just seem to be a little bit softer and and a little bit more delicate and nuanced. And I just uh, I don't know. Again, I'm probably just putting that in my own head because I I think it's a sexy idea getting hops straight from Germany. But sure, sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about the you know the way you select malt and then. Uh, um, how you use malt uh, in, uh, say, Pilsner and Helles to uh, kind of accomplish uh, building a, a kind of character and a toothiness, even in these very light beers. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, it's funny that you say that because we just uh, kind of harping on what I was just talking about. We we get this special malt from Germany uh from Epiphany. Epiphany is this local craft maltster in Durham, North Carolina, and they source this uh, Ursprung Fest malt, um, which is only made once a year. They grow it, I believe it's just for Oktoberfest, obviously. Um, 
but it's it's just it's one of my favorite malts we've ever brewed with um so whenever it's available we buy at least a couple pallets of it um it's just got this it's a pilsner malt but it's got a little bit more body and like a slightly slightly darker color and just this great crackery kind of biscuit quality that's just much more accentuated than your typical pilsner malt um so again there's probably a little bit of placebo happening there with me but because it's coming straight from um this one farm in germany um but I, I think that the end product really kind of bores it out. And uh, the beers that we've made with that malt have been really great. Um, but yeah, for our typical pills, we, we are kind of uh, suckers for Weirman. Um I know a lot of brewers who are as well. Um, there's just something about it, man. I don't, I don't know. We've used, we've used other malts as well um, and had some pretty good success. Uh, but for a beer that you're especially a beer like Hellas, which is pretty lightly hopped. Um, it's really all about the malt character that you're getting. And you really just, you want something that's not going to produce a lot of DMS. <laughs> you want something that's going to have a really nice biscuit kind of bready quality to it. Right. Um, and we've been able to find that with Vireman products pretty consistently. And like I said, we've, when we get this other malt from Germany, we kind of start using it in everything we can. Um, so yeah, we just brewed our Fest, Fest beer and a Hellas 100% with this malt, and we'll probably do a few more before before it's out. That's interesting. And so you will switch the malt back to something else, even for something named in the same brand and. Uh, uh, consumers don't have an expectation and it'll be o it'll be okay for them i mean you know we uh yeah we kind of it's kind of like if you got the product uh that's available the best product available use it and make the best beer you can and there's going to be a little bit of variation um but i think it's worth it to get that you know that one variation that might be a little bit better uh and hopefully the consumers understand. Luckily, we're not a huge brewery, and I've, our business model has had to change quite a bit. But I don't know that we have a lot of expectation around our brands, um, which is intentional. Uh, we've had to be a little bit more thoughtful about that now because we're basically, with COVID, now a production brewery for the most part. And our beers are being sent all around. But... Uh, I, but we're still brewing so many different brands all the time that it's hard for, I think, for consumers to like compare directly one batch to a second batch. We brew them so infrequently. So I think that works in our advantage, but hopefully uh, that doesn't, <laughs> hopefully that doesn't change now that we're a production brewery and might be brewing the same beers more frequently. Sure, sure. Well, we've been chatting for a while now, but one way that I'd, I'd love to end the podcast is talking to you about um, what success looks like for resident culture. Um, when will you and uh, Phil know that you have achieved it? Um, what is that goal? Is there an end vision for what you hope to achieve? Um, how far off would that be? And uh, yeah, how do you define it? Yeah, I guess if you had asked us that, 
uh, you know, four months ago, we would probably have a different answer. I think right now we're we're just trying to weather the current storm and make sure that all of our employees are taken care of. And so for us right now, that means uh, brewing as much beer as we can, as fast as we can. And, you know, we're, we've obviously had to cut our margins quite a bit and that's okay. Uh, we feel pretty fortunate compared to other people. Um, so assuming we can kind of weather this storm, um, we've, <laughs> we truly have really shifted our thinking on everything. Um, because we're probably going to continue the distribution footprint that we have, the drive-through service, the deliveries. Um, they've they've been going pretty well in our area, so we kind of want to continue doing that, even when we are able to reopen uh, at full capacity. Um, but our kind of goal from the beginning, even before all this happened, was to really kind of capitalize on the taproom model, um, which, you know, works in our favor in a lot of ways. Uh, the margins are better. It allows me some creative freedom to brew whatever beers I want to, um, and present them in their freshest form. We have a lot more control over the product and we know, you know, that we're serving something that tastes good and we can control a lot more. So, I mean, we're, Literally in February, Philip, my partner, was maybe a couple, I mean, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but we were about to sign a lease on a new location in Charlotte. Um, and luckily we didn't. Um, it would have been bad timing. I'm sure there, <laughs> hopefully they would have been a little bit generous with us, but we've had to back off that. And it's still something that we absolutely or striving for longer term is to find another location that we can create kind of a similar experience. Um, like I said, our current brewery is now a production brewery. So our former barrel room events room is completely taken over with grain and cans and bottles and storage. And like half of our tap room is, is also storage for the brewery. And we don't really foresee that changing anytime soon so having a second taproom space would definitely be a priority of ours going forward and that's just kind of the model that we we like um with uh i guess probably a little bit of a bigger distribution footprint than we had originally envisioned but it's been going pretty well and i think the beer is moving fairly fast which is good um, but as long as i can kind of ensure that the quality is still good and the beers moving in distro quickly. Um, we'll probably keep that keep that going. No, this uh, this certainly pandemic COVID shutdown era has uh, you know pushed us all to um, making the best of it and understanding that um, you know uh, even just making it is pretty good these days um, rather than having grandiose dreams for giant successes or, or the next, you know, crazy creative project. Um, has it honed, has it kind of focused your um, creative exploration a little bit? Do you find yourself um, playing in a narrower band or, um, you know, has it, or are you taking advantage of, I mean, you know, obviously because you have to sell beer in this specific way, which is putting it into cans 
that then, you know, people buy at a specific size of a batch that's worth going through that kind of production, um, you know, uh, process with, do you find yourself, you know, brewing in a different kind of uh, creative way or um, how has it impacted that? Yeah, for sure. We, we certainly can't get as funky as we probably were in the past. Um, there's a few road blocks, um, for one, we have to be cognizant of our artist. We have an in-house artist, Marissa Pickett, who's incredible. Um, but if we were brewing new beers every day, she would go insane because she has to create a label from scratch for all of our beers now because we're canning everything that we make. Uh, so, which means that we're brewing a lot of brands that we have previously brewed that we have labels for to kind of alleviate her workload. Um, it all that likewise means that we can't necessarily brew a ton of, uh, you know, two and a half percent table beers that we would love to have on tap at the tap room and drink ourselves, but maybe don't necessarily sell all that well in a production setting. Sure, um, sure. That doesn't mean that we won't brew them. We just did brew one recently, but that's, you know, the exception, not the rule. Um, so yeah, for sure. We've had to kind of focus our, our efforts on the IPAs for sure. Uh, luckily our loggers are still moving well, which that gives me a lot of hope for our world, the future of our world that uh, we can still sell loggers well. Um, and, you know, it, we're just grateful to be where we're at and making it. I'm never, not going to complain about not being able to brew weird beers at a time like this. Absolutely, for sure. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Set your compass by RAR North Star Pills. From half barrel to 30 barrel systems, brumation puts you in control. Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. Abe Beverage Equipment offers complete brewing and packaging solutions. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Uh, Tropes, if people want to learn more about Resident Culture, where do they find you guys? Yeah, uh, Instagram, at Resident Culture. Uh, our website, residentculturebrewing.com. Um, if you're in the charlotte area you can uh get beer delivered to your doorstep um and we're gonna start trying to expand our distribution footprint um around north carolina a little bit more uh tavor t-a-v-o-u-r we send quite a bit of beer to them and that gets uh sent uh all around the country for the most part um right to your doorstep so that's probably the best way to try our beer if you're not in north carolina cool well, Tropes, it was great, uh, great talking with you, and uh, yeah, wish you the best. Thanks for joining Likewise, me. On, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.